Good evening, everyone, and thank you for coming out on this cold evening. I'd just like to bring Auntie Benita Mabo, who's the patron for the Australian South Sea Islanders Interim National Body, uh, to do an acknowledgement of country before we start. Thank you. Firstly, I'd like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of this land in which we stand tonight, past and present. And all, our, all the elders here in the room tonight, we, we're very grateful for you to all come along tonight as it, this is a very important year for us. And, uh, and it's 150 years since our people was out here, but it's sad that it's, it's only now took that long for, um, for us to get up and stand up and say that and be counted as we're a distinct ethnic group, Australian South Sea Islanders, and we're here to stay. Our ancestors were, were the slaves that came out to this country and cleared up North Queensland, and we still got nothing, nothing to show for, for, for their hard work. And then when we went back to Vanuatu this, just a couple of weeks ago, and it was so beautiful, it was um, very emotional. Um, and, and now we hear them talking about um, they want to come out and work and they're very hard workers. And now they've got to they buy a, a visa, get a working visa to come out and do some work. You know, look, they brought our ancestors out. They didn't need to have a visa. You know, now today they've got to they buy this visa to come out and do some work. And I, I, think, uh, I think the government too should, should really, you know, come to the party with us and give us the things that we want today. You know, we're here to stay and we're not going away. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks, Annie Benita. I'd also like to start by acknowledging the traditional owners of the land on which we meet today and elders past and present. I'd also like to acknowledge our Sassy Islander forefathers and elders past and present. Thank you to the Sydney University, Sydney Ideas and the Australian Association for Pacific Studies for supporting the recognition of 150 years of our Sassy Islander forefathers. The staff involved uh, in the coordinating at the Maclay Museum, in particular Matt Pohl, the Indigenous Curator uh, for Maclay Museum and Senior Curator uh, Jude Phillip Phillips. Of course, there's many other people that have, um, the media people, of course, made Meredith, um, that have supported in pulling this together. It's a great opportunity to be here tonight. I'd like to talk a bit about... Um, our organisation and uh, just so you understand who we are and how we sort of came about. But uh, we, we were founded in uh, 2010 and uh, the founding members were Adi Shireen Malamu, uh, myself, Nellie Inez, uh, my son Shola Diop and Vinette Diop uh, and Adi Carriet Pangas. And we registered in 2010 in uh, realising that it was uh, necessary to have a lobby group in Sydney uh, to assist with setting up a community development organisation, given that the call for recognition has laid dormant for 20-odd years. 
governments weren't taking or following through on the, the Commonwealth recognition and we found it necessary to, um, I guess, uh, reignite this call for recognition. Uh, Matt Pohl played a role in that, uh, also Leslie Yasso, who's here today. Uh, there's a lot of South Sea Islander people in this room that laid the foundation uh, for what we build on uh, or advocating for uh, in the call for recognition. So I'd just like to acknowledge those people for all the great work that they've done prior to us coming along as well. Mrs Benita Marbo has recently accepted our request as patron, uh, which is an honour to have such an eminent leader to take on this very important role. We value her support and look forward to working with her. She will assist the very critical work ahead of drawing the public and Commonwealth and state government attention to many issues concerning the tragic history and abuses of South Sea Islander human rights in Australia during the 19th and 20th century. What we, what we have achieved to date has been no small task and it's been a lot of hard work and it's been a lot of voluntary work and unpaid work um, for all of our board. Uh, I'd like to congratulate and thank the ASSIPJ team for their ongoing voluntary work and commitment, in particular, Auntie Shireen Malamu and my mother Nellie Inez and Danny Togo, uh, former board member Graham Mooney, uh, all give me the strength and courage to su and support that I need to take on this challenge. Matt Pohl, Nee Wadigo, former board member, and uh, recently Professor Clive Moore and Murray Geisler, who have, ment who have mentored and developed many strategies in getting the government to take notice of our milestones of success in seeing three capacity workshops funded under the Senator Kate Lundy's Community Cohesion Program to the value of $50,000, and a further two capacity building workshops uh, to be delivered through philanthropic funding in the Solomon Islands and Vanuatu at, uh, in 2014. All PJ team members bring a strong and relevant skill base to this vision. Our organisation structure consists of an ASSI representative board, which is made up of myself, Danny Togo as Vice President, Shireen Malamu, Melina Fakatava, and Shola Diop. Our strategy team is led by Paramount Chief Dwayne Vickery, and he's from Mackay, but he's based in Tasmania. Graham Tanner from Bundaberg, Badassi organisation, or Bundaberg and District Association. Pastor Ray Minicon, who's also based in Sydney, but he's from Bundaberg, and Mari Geisler. Our historical advisory team, or panel, is led by Professor Clive Moore and Professor Graceland Smallwood, who are here today. Dr Francis Babongi from Central Queensland uh, University. Doug Hunt, JCU Cairns, and Professor Stephen Mullins from Central Queensland University. We also have a... Um, a working committee uh, that will be responsible for looking at the national body structure that we'll be presenting in the next month. Uh, a national body structure will be a representative voice, a voice that uh, represents all organisations and community leaders uh, for Australia, South Sea Islanders. And these people put their hand up at one talk 2012 in Bundaberg to say that, yes, we're going to work alongside you. So. We've got Matthew John, who's from... I just want to acknowledge these people, just so you know, or you might know them, so that's why I'm sort of going through this. Um, Matthew John Sheaf, he's based in Brisbane. Um, Mariana Obed from Vanuatu. 
Dennis Babongi, he's in uh, North Queensland, Jody Togo and Fiona Mount from the Tweed Australian South Sea Islanders Organisation, Chief Simon Kakai from Vanuatu Indigenous Descendants, and Kakai Pakoa from VASIC, they're based in Logan, Matt Nagus from Bundaberg Organisation, Don Fakwandi from the Sunshine Coast Organisation, Robert Mann and Loris Korowa. They are with Linking the Generations in Rockhampton. And Marcia Eves, who's from uh, Mackay, and she's here today. She's flown in especially. Um, I see the ASSIPJ as a, uh, an effective lobby group that has seized opportunity, which has seen success in securing meetings with state and Commonwealth governments as well as educa uh, educating them on the history of Australian South Sea Islanders. We've spoken to a number of ministers and senators um, that have listened and uh, embraced bringing their uh, history of Australian South Sea Islanders up to scratch. And most recently, um, we've secured New South Wales recognition through a debate uh, by uh, Alex Granich, who's here today, member for Sydney, and we'd just like to thank him very much for all the hard work and working with us consistently over the last few months. Thank you very much. So that debate was had on the 15th of August in New South Wales Parliament, and uh, it saw meaningful debate and seven-odd seven um, ministers speak on behalf of our community and speak with such empathy and, and consideration. And uh, it was a unanimous vote by all parties. So it was a wonderful, wonderful day for us uh, during this uh, 150th year. But I won't waffle on because, you know, got to keep it casual. So um, I just wanted to introduce our panel tonight and thank them all for giving up their time. Uh, first of all, we'll start with uh, Alex Greenwich, uh, the member for Sydney. Thank you for being here. And he'll be speaking on... Uh, I guess the, the debate that went on and, and just enlightening people to uh, the commitment that's behind it. Uh, Jeff McMullen, a former a journalist um, and uh, activist, I, dare I say. But um, thank you for being here and giving up your time as well. Auntie Shireen Malamu, who's just uh, an amazing lady that's achieved so much and uh, inspires me every day. Uh, thank you for being here, Auntie Shireen. And... Uh, Gracelyn Smallwood, uh, another amazing lady, uh, Professor Gracelyn Smallwood, and also Professor Clive Moore, who's just been phenomenal in supporting us in getting the historical aspect um, of this uh, fantastic history that we have. But um, and thank you for your un, you know your commitment and uh, dealing with a lot of criticism, and we're here to debate more of that tonight. So I guess we'll start off with, I'm losing track of everything. Um, Professor Clive Moore. Did you want to stand or? Is that working? Oh, it is working. Good. Good evening. Uh, I'm delighted to be here because I've had a very long-term uh, commitment to uh, the history of Australian South Sea Islanders, uh, and really that's been since the 1970s, even though as a historian I've wandered off and done other things at times. Uh, this 150th anniversary I could hardly walk away from. 
because it is a time for the South Sea people to come together and re-put a case to all governments and just to remind the Australian people that they are, as was said by uh, our patron, uh, that they're here, we're here and we're not going away. Um, what I would try to... I'll try and summarise the background for you. For some, some of you, you will, you'll have intimate knowledge of Australian South Sea Islanders. Some of you don't, uh, or you only know one aspect. So let's just see if we can put some things together. The first thing I'd say, and then I'll try and justify it, is that I don't think any, there is any immigrant group into Australia that was treated as badly as Australian South Sea Islanders. The only people that have been treated as badly are Indigenous Australians. Now, justification for a statement like that. Let's first just try and give some sort of um, idea of the numbers of, of people we're talking about and where they come from and then try and point out the justification. It's a very, very complex process because it's 150 years you're talking about what is uh, usually known in polite terms as uh, the labour trade uh, between 1863 and about 1904, whereby about 62,000 Pacific Islanders from various countries in the Pacific came into Queensland to work in uh, the sugar industry, pastoral industry, and also in the maritime industry. Initially, they came from, uh, let's just use the modern names, Vanuatu, Solomon Islands, Papua New Guinea, uh, Fiji, but only from Rotuma, one island in Fiji, uh, Kiribati and Tuvalu, and also what's now New Caledonia, but only from the loyalty islands in New Caledonia. The majority, the vast majority, come out of Vanuatu and the Solomons. Were the 62,000 individuals there were 62,000 labour contracts, and you can debate what a labour contract means to someone who's, who can't read or write, but 60, the government record shows 62,000 labour engagements. Uh, probably only about 50,000 people, because we know, undoubtedly, that in the, certainly in the later period, some of them came to Australia more than once. And some of them went to Fiji, might have left Solomon Islands, gone to Fiji, gone to Samoa, gone to New Caledonia, uh, and then also to Queensland, or went to Queensland twice or any sort of combination in there. So that a safe estimate would be around 50,000 actual human beings, 95% male, aged, in theory, legally, between about 16 and anything upwards of that, probably to about 35. But we do know that, that there are significant numbers who are under 16. And there are lots of examples in the community where you ask them, and they'll say, well, my grandfather said he was 12 or he was 13 when he first came out to uh, Australia. So that a variation in, in ages. And uh, they came out under, they were governed by Acts of Parliament, initially only by the Masters and Servants Act. Then from 1868, there's a significant Act of Parliament which is forced on Queensland, but really by the, the British government, saying, come on, you've got to regulate this because it's fairly shady what's going on. And then there's another major act in 1880, varied in 1884, 85, 86. There's another one in 1892. Then there's the final Commonwealth one in 1901. Now, if you want to go 
then to, uh, I won't go into the details of wh which islands in particular they came from, but overall about two thirds came out of Vanuatu and about one third came out of the Solomons. If you ask, say, Papua New Guinea, there are two or three thousand in the 1880s that come out of the islands of Papua New Guinea, not off the mainland. Uh, and the other numbers are, are much smaller. Now, my justification. One, and what, why are they the worst treated uh, immigrant group in Australia? One is kidnapping. Because th there is no doubt, I mean, we, we can debate all of these things, how many were kidnapped and how many knew what they were doing. Obviously, if some court come more than twice and go to more than one colony, they do actually, there's, there must be some sort of agency in the process of what they're doing. They, they must, they've made a choice if they go to three different colonies over a, a period of time. But even the most conservative historians would say 10 to 15% would have to be kidnapped by, by the definitions of what kidnapping is under the Acts of Parliament. Uh, some of the islanders would say that that's a conservative figure and uh, that, that the figure would actually be higher than that. What actually, what I would say actually happens is that there's a, in the first 10 years or so of access to any island, there's likely to be a very high degree of illegality. But equally, when sons and nephews follow fathers over a 40 year period, you have to question exactly what's going on. But Nobody else, no other immigrant group was kidnapped to come to Australia. Then there's the question of slavery. Uh, were they slaves? Uh, being a, a precise historian, I would say, well, in, in law they're not slaves because slavery means the ownership of individuals, buying and selling of individuals, it's a status for life, your children are owned. In that, term, in that way, they're not slaves. But they certainly, they, they, the American Civil War is still happening 150 years ago. So that there's a process going on here where there's a transition from slavery as a, a mechanism of labour to indenture. And indenture is actually used for Europeans as well uh, a couple of hundred years before that. But people have called indenture a new form of slavery. Once slavery is outlawed, Europeans sort of scratch their heads and sort of say, well, how can we accomplish the same thing? And the mechanism is indenture. So there's a slide between slavery and indenture that's going on in this process. And you can debate exactly what that word means and whether you can't use it at all or whether you use it in a, uh, a descriptive way or whether it's, it's ac an accurate word to use. The next thing I would say that even if they weren't all f kidnapped, I would say they're all culturally kidnapped. They're all stolen away because you're taking them out of a, uh, a closed small island system and bringing them in as capitalist plantation labour into a situation they don't really understand. E even the most willing don't understand. Can I just give you one example, and I'll run out of time if I don't do this. One example. An old man in the Solomon said to me in the 1970s, and I've never forgotten this, he asked me two questions. He was an old non-Christian man who lived in the bush. And he said, can I walk around your... He could walk around his own island in a week. He said, can I walk around your island in a week? He meant Australia. He had no concept of the size. And then he asked me a second question. He said, do you have the same moon in Australia as we do here? I said, yeah. He didn't know. This is the 1970s. Imagine the 1870s. Okay. Then, so that, and I said, so there's a cultural kidnapping process that goes on. Let's just move on. Another thing is the high mortality statistics. They're astoundingly high. 
out of, say, 50,000 individuals, 15,000 died. 15,000. Now, that's 30% of the people died. Most of those that died were new recruits who hadn't been exposed to the outside world before. The deaths were higher in the first six months or 12 months. If you survived that amount of time, you probably became acclimatised and you probably could cope. But those death rates, I mean, uh, you know, ask, ask Graceland what, what a death rate like that means. It, it's, it's a horrific death rate. Then wages. Some people would say they weren't paid. In fact, they were paid, uh, but they were paid significantly lower amounts of money than Europeans were. The, the rates vary from uh, over the 40-year period. Some of them were only paid six pounds a year. You might say that's low money, but you've really got to ask a question, what would you pay a European labourer at the same time? It's about 35 pounds, roughly. The other thing is that six pounds a year is a fixed wage, doesn't change for 40 years. They obviously hadn't heard of inflation in the 19th century, so that they never varied that basic wage rate. Then go on from that, that the wages of deceased islanders from 1885, before 1885 they just seem to have been kept by the employee, employers as far as I can work out. After 1885 they were kept by the Queensland Government and there was an act of parliament to put them into a, a trust fund and they were supposed to be returned to the next of kin in the islands in the form of trade goods. Uh, in fact, the government statistics show that only about 15% of those wages were actually returned. So the government kept 85% of the wages and used it, used that and other monies to finance the whole administration of the, the process of the labour trade. Uh, so that the dead were paying for the administration of the living. Uh, and then to put a little bit more salt into the wounds, uh, in 1901 the Commonwealth decided because of white Australia ideas and well, really the whole federal parliament was in support of not allowing uh, non-Europeans into Australia and getting the islanders out. They're the only people who had an act of parliament passed to have them excluded from the country. The only thing that comes close to that would be the expulsion of Australian Japanese after the Second World War and that's not by act of parliament. So it's an act of parliament was passed to get rid of them. Uh, congratulations to those that stayed. They, there's now a community of at least 30,000, uh, and they've, you know, they've, you know, they can thumb their nose at the Commonwealth in a sense. But the Commonwealth, that was a despicable act. And the Commonwealth then said, "How are we going to pay for this?" They paid for it by asking Queensland for the contents of the trust fund. So again, the wages of deceased islanders paid for the deportation of those that were here. I won't go into any more details there. And then I'll end up by saying in the 20th century, and South Sea Islanders are inclined to forget this, I think there's a, a very significant case to be made about social neglect in the 20th century. Because they were no longer, even if you're underpaid, you're, you're, you're a wanted labourer within the system. In the 20th century, no one wanted them at all. They were left, they were excluded from the sugar industry, particularly by trade unions and by sugar in by the uh, Sugar Acts, um, and they were left to work, live in sugar districts on the fringes of society, unwanted. That's Thank probably you. enough. Thank you so much. Um, so we'll just move on, time's limited, um, to Professor Graceland Smallwood um, and speaking more about Aboriginal, Torres Strait Islander and South Sea Islander perspectives. Okay. Well, I'd like to pay my respects to the 
traditional owners and our creator. Can you hear me up the back? Oh, okay. Do you want? I said not to touch that. Is that better? And um, I'd um, like to pay my respects to our elders, past and present, all in the front here. My Auntie Benita, big sister here, Shireen, sister Rosie, and um, anyway, and the audience. I, I'm um, Clive, and I go way back, and I'd like to thank the committee for asking me to come down and elder and. and um, I just discovered in the car we're both 62. That's the black and white minstrels. We've seen it there. And um, Clive and I come uh, from around the Townsend region. And uh, when Shireen, and I'd like to say Wadamuli, I've got a Birragubba elder sitting over there. I'm Birragubba, uh, my clan, and also South Sea Islander. And uh, Sister Shireen here, I think it was the 70s or the 80s, she was at James Cook University. and. Uh, really pushing the movement uh, about the violations of human rights against First Nations peoples, Torres Strait Aboriginal and South Sea Islanders. But I was pretty privileged to have been brought up in an era where I had uh, both sides of the coin and I guess uh, the label I got was the human rights activist but the nutty professor. And my background is health. I've been retired now for two years after 45 years registered nurse midwife travelling the world. But having a look at a lot of slavery and human rights violations, which I've just completed two years ago, a PhD thesis, and I've called it the First Nations Australians Wellbeing with Violations of Human Rights, where I talk about uh, my heritage, both Aboriginal and uh, South Sea Islander. But a lot of the evidence-based research, as I said, I was privileged to have been brought up with real deadly elders on both sides talking about the horrendous, horrendous treatment of, uh, of not only uh, South Sea Islander people but all of our people. And uh, Clive has given uh, uh, quite a good historical overview as a historian. And I went over to Vanuatu myself a couple of years ago um, to meet some of my countrymen over there. And um, the difficulty we have in Australian society is that there is that mentality of denial and uh, that all white immigration policy is still the mindset of, um, of many white Australians. And um, I looked at the, I think 30 years ago, I won a scholarship uh, to America, New Zealand, Canada, and I really focused a lot when I was teaching at the Cultural Learning Institute at the East West Centre, where many Pacific Islanders students came there and uh, I was teaching about the slavery, the slavery of Australia, the hidden country, the hidden, all the, the secrets. And they were quite shocked to even uh, know that there were black folks in Australia. And uh, most of the students, I said, you all look like my countrymen. And when I showed them photographs, of both the Aboriginal, Torres Strait and South Seaside, um, they were rather shocked about the stories of the slavery. But Christianity has actually played a major role in suppressing a lot of information of our elders that have taken a lot of their stories to their graves and I'm very grateful for some that were game enough to, to talk about it. And um, I guess in Townsville, as Clive and Shireen would tell you where we hail from, um, the town is named after 
the infamous Robert Towns, one of the greatest uh, blackbirders. And um, then they, they put a monument up in Townsville. I thought, this, is this the 17th century or the 21st century? And then we have a university named after Captain James Cook and a very large black population there. And um, so I guess my writings was a daily diary for 50 years and uh, pulled that together with a PhD and hopefully my biography will be out soon before I cross over. And I say that uh, when I tell students, I'm 62 but my life expectancy is 52. In turn, we're talking about closing the gap. But if we, if we got rid of racism, we'd start to be able to heal. This is the only country in the world that is denying the rights of First Nations Australians as well as our South Sea Islander people. And as Clive said, they had legislation that actually, you know, wanted to send, after using our mob um, as the slaves to, to make the sugar industry what it was, then the all-white immigration policy. See, they thought they'd kill us all off by the, the poisoning of our water holes and, uh, and then white Australia jumped up and down when Vincent Lingiari wanted some equal rights when um, a number of our South Pacific Islanders and my grandmother, South Sea Islander, um, some of them found it very hard to want to go back to the islands. And that was that legislation of the all-white immigration policy. But my um, position here, uh, purely as an elderly advisor, is why shouldn't the South Sea Islander people have recognition and, and reparation? And we're still fighting for First Nations Australians. And, I've got 10 minutes to talk to you about 150 years of slavery, but you start me on the deaths in custody, the National Aboriginal Health Strategy, the intervention, and AMP. I was talking to a group of non-Indigenous students yesterday who asked me about, oh, well, you know, people are saying the intervention and alcohol management plans are really good. We have to take the grog off your mob. I just thought, are these going to be our leaders of tomorrow? talking to me, this old girl like this. I said, well, there's been a massive increase. Prohibition of alcohol and drugs has never worked anywhere in the world. My people are suffering diseases that third world countries have eradicated. We have an infant mortality rate that used to be six times higher than white Australians. Now it's three times higher. Adults are dying 20 years before um, white Australians and we're 2.5% of the national population. And uh, we have... Uh, uh, a wealthy country that uh, is pressing through legislation, interventions and alcohol management plans and not wanting to give reparation to the issue of slavery. And I said, it's like we've just woken up in the 17th century and we're fighting for what is basically our rights. It's not about money, it's about recognition of the horrendous genocide and slavery that has gone on in this country for 230 years, but 150 um, against our South Pacific Islander countrymen. And so I guess if we had a Bill of Rights and a, um, um, a treaty, because they had to suspend the Racial Discrimination Act to implement um, the alcohol management plans and intervention, and, and to give basic cards, it's just unbelievable. And I've only been speaking out for 45 years, and I wrote in the in my PhD about the poisoning of the waterholes, which was legal. You could, you could shoot 
our people, you know, whether they were South Sea Islander or Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander, line our live little babies up and kick their heads off and cut the ears off of our adults, cut the penises off our men. And today, they actually still have that all-white immigration mentality that all of our black men are violent pedophiles. And as recent as two days ago, a 65-year-old white male went down to the park where um, our um, indigenous itinerants were drinking alcohol and gave them soft drink cans and alcohol bottles and said, this is my gift to you. And it was chemical poisonings, rat poisoning, that was placed in those containers. And I thought, isn't the irony of this, my PhD is getting published and I talked about slavery, not just slavery, genocide and the poisoning of our waterholes. So this country has a long way to go in terms of giving us basic human rights. First of all, they want to uh, bring us, uh, exterminate us all, then bring the all-white immigration policy. And as I, I, I say very clearly that Christianity has played a major role in suppressing all the slavery and genocide stories. And it's only since we've all started to speak out and come together as one, um, the stories, there's so many of the, so much of the history has been taken to our elders' graves. So I'm here to basically support uh, the committee, which I thank them very much. Most of you know who I am. I, um, I'm very much an advocate against all violations of human rights and was quite outspoken against the death in custody on Palm Island. But also we have a national Aboriginal health strategy, the Royal Commission into Aboriginal Deaths in Custody, where very few of those recommendations have been implemented. But if we combated racism, things would start to flow into place. No other colonised country in the world is tolerating what South Sea Islander people are tolerating, what Aboriginal Australians are First Nation countrymen and Torres Strait Islanders are tolerating. Now, when in 19... I'm nearly finished, Sister Melda. In 1967... I think I'm still at the university. 1967, when that, uh, that re uh, referendum occurred, um, the 2% that uh, didn't vote for us was Townsville and Toowoomba. Is that right, Professor? Because the, uh, Queensland was built on black slavery. The South Pacific Islanders in the sugarcane industry, the Torres Strait Islanders in the railways, and our Aboriginal countrymen in the stock, in, in, the, in the cattle industry and domestics. And the South African apartheid, a part of it was modelled on the Aboriginal Island Protection Act. And I went over as a VIP guest to Mr Mandela for a few years, and in 1997 when I went over for Steve Biko's memorial, Mr Mandela clearly said that in, in my country of South Africa, they're having reconciliation with the truth. In Australia, they're trying to have reconciliation without the truth. And if we don't have the real truth and history, it will be continually returned. And that's what I hope that all Australians, both black and white, will vote for us and having all of our deadly people up there, like my sister here from the Northern Territory and others. And um, because the true history of this country has to be made compulsory from kindergarten right through. And I believe we're going to change the face of racism in this country and all of us can live together in harmony. Watermully and God bless you all. Thank you.
Thank you, Professor Grayson Smallwood. Um, Alex Greenwich now, speaking of recognition and your great achievement or our great achievement in the last week, New South Wales recognition for Australian South Sea Islanders. Um, maybe just share a bit about what it meant to you when you first encountered us and then speak about those recommendations that went forward. Okay, great. Um, I, I'd also like to start by acknowledging the traditional owners of our land and pay my respects to, to their elders past and present. Um, New South Wales Parliament uh, really comes together in the way that we did last Thursday. It's quite a, a, a toxic and, and divisive environment. Um, but it, it was certainly not, not uh, my achievement or my accomplishment. It, 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 it was yours, it was the Australian South Sea Islanders and, and the great work that, that you had, had done. Um, I, you know, I, I want to be honest with everyone. I just got elected last October and I didn't know about our history uh, regarding to Australian South Sea Islanders. Um, it was uh, uh, Lola and Imelda and uh, Shireen who came and met with me, I think within two weeks of, of me getting elected, and, and they, gave, they gave me a, a really important history lesson. Um, what then really concerned me is that our, our, our parliament, New South Wales Parliament, is the oldest parliament in, in the country, hadn't actually addressed this issue uh, in any meaningful way. There was the 95 uh, Memorandum of Understanding from Premier Carbon, but none of those recommendations were, were followed through. Um, uh, so I sent about to, to, to draft a motion of a formal recognition of, of the past atrocities uh, and indeed uh, to, to recognise the role of, of, of the Australian South Sea Islanders in our history. Um, the, the timing of it coming up uh, 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 last week, um, you know, 10 days before the 150th anniversary was, uh, was a bit of a fluke, um, uh, but, uh, but a really important one. Um, the, what really surprised me is, is sometimes these things will just come up, the government and the opposition will just shut it down. Um, they'll move it along and it won't, the issue just won't be dealt with. That, that was not the approach that was taken here and it was, it was also correspondence that many had received from the Australian South Sea Islanders about, uh, about the importance of, of the motion and what it means. Um, uh, and I actually had members for the days leading up to the motion being debated coming up to me to make sure that they would be able to speak, uh, getting their researchers to, to work on it. And, and a lot of members who had been around uh, longer than me in, in the place um, also shared with me that, you know, we're, we're people who should be pretty educated. You know, you'd hope most of us are, are, are fairly well educated in our parliament. Um, what I appreciated was that a lot of people were honest, that they did not know the history of the Australian South Sea Islanders. They may have heard of it, but they were certainly not aware of the, of the level of atrocity that had occurred and the level of exploitation that had occurred. Um, uh, so it was, it was really powerful that we were able to have that really open and honest conversation. Um, uh, uh, and, and the speeches were really heartfelt. You know, we covered a lot of areas. We really, we really went through the, the, the history quite well, I, I believe, um, from the role of the union movement um, through to the deportation and the, and the impact uh, that it continues to have on, on, the, uh, on the descendants of the Australian South Sea Islanders. Uh, so it, it was really powerful to, to be a part of it that day. Uh, but I, 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 I don't think that, that doing that motion, as great as it was, is certainly enough. Um, you know, I think that we, 
that more needs to be done. And we know that, that Minister Dominello, the New South Wales Minister for Multicultural Affairs, will, will be meeting with the Australian South Sea Islanders uh, and myself soon to work out the steps going forward to walk, work on the community profile that, that will be established and what needs to happen going forward. Linda Burney, in, in her speech on, on the motion, spoke about the importance of, of having the, the, uh, the Australian South Sea Islanders' history and exploitation in school curriculum, and I think that's really important. This is a part of our, uh, our past that we cannot forget because you learn from your past. And, and if we continue to ignore that, the, that this has happened, uh, how, how can we ever learn and, and grow as, as a nation? And as Grace said, actually tackle racism head on. Um, and, and combat that. Um, you know, I, I, th there was also a lot more that could have been said when we were when we were doing the debate. And and since the debate, I've come to sort of think a lot about the. We, we, we spoke about those who were kidnapped. We spoke about those who were exploited, and we spoke about those who who died here. And 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 um, and as Clive said, it was around fifteen thousand. But we should have been also talking more about the, the families that were left behind. I mean, this was 50,000 young men uh, taken from islands. Uh, the impact that that would have had on their families, their communities, their, their economies, it is, is indeed something that is very profound. And I think we also need to address the negative impact that Australia had on those nations and and on the, those families, where they where they you know the young men and their families were taken away, kidnapped by the Australian government. If they didn't die, we took everything from them and then sent them back once they had lost a great sense of identity. So this is this is a tragic part of of of, of Australia's history and one that you know I, I'm I'm really grateful to the Australian South Sea Islanders and. and and for the education role that you've played and the important lobbying role that you've played, um, uh, and, and I think that, that a lot, a lot has been, a lot has been achieved. There's still a lot more, more to do, um, uh, and, and I look forward to, to being a part of that and helping however I can. But I, I'm just really grateful to um, to have been able to, to speak in favour of, of of the of the motion, which was the the formal statement of, of acknowledgement of, of the atrocities and, and to be part of putting in place a, a set of actions with, with the government towards um, uh, addressing a way forward. Uh, so, so uh, you know, uh, I know Imelda has thanked, has, has thanked me and, and, and Lola and Shireen have, but I really thank you. Um, this is something that, that's really important and you guys have played an amazing leadership role. Thank you so much. Thank you, Ajahn. So I guess, um, from this point on, it would be great to open up the floor to questions and possibly if you had questions with regards to the New South Wales um, government uh, recognition or uh, other panellists that are here today. And we'll get a summary uh, from Adi Shireen and uh, Jeff McMullen uh, once we've had a bit of a yarn, I guess. But thank you for that, Alex. Wonderful. Did anyone have any questions? Um, to uh, Clive Moore. Clive, you've done a lot of research and recorded a lot of um, Australian South Sea Islander families. What happens to those recordings and will they be available to organisations or just to families? Uh, what's being referred to is, um, is collections of, 
oral history from uh, South Sea Islanders uh, in recorded between about uh, 1975, four and 1981. Uh, coming out of James Cook University, there were uh, interviews done uh, by mainly by Patricia Mercer and myself uh, from about Ingham down to um, well, some of them are down as far as Meribah, mostly the Burdekin and the Mackay area. And then there are other interviews that were conducted by Matt Peacock from the ABC for uh, three one-hour radio programs, so that, that, that almost at exactly the same time. So I, I consider that as part of the same material. There's about 120 hours of tapes. Now, most of those people that were interviewed have now sadly passed on because they were in their 60s and 70s at that time. Uh, those tapes were done on uh, cassette tapes and uh, for a long time I used to look at them and wasn't going to play them because uh, I knew they were very fragile. In the mid-1990s, uh, there are three sets of these tapes. One at James Cook University, I have a private set and Patricia Mercer has a private set. Tr uh, Trisha's have never been converted from cassettes, so she's just got cassettes. James Cook University uh, converted those onto CDs in the, a bit earlier in the 1990s. I converted mine in about 1995-96. So that, that was a preservation of them. The originals exist, but uh, only a, a technical expert could use them. Now, the question really is, um, what's their future? Uh, at the moment, they are supposed to be available for access through James Cook University uh, uh, with uh, permission either from uh, Trish or myself, and it usually means me because I'm still in the university system and she's not. Um, and that was something we promised the islanders who were recorded, that they would be available uh, for bona fide researchers and to their families, to, to the islander families to use over, a period, uh, over any period of time. However, I'm not going to work at the university forever and I don't really want to be in charge of these tapes forever. So that the question is, uh, how are they going to be made more readily? They are available, but are they to be made more readily available through a library system like the National Library, through the uh, Queensland State Library, or through uh, the Islanders themselves in some way, through at the association? What I would envisage is that, and now digital technology is here, that they can be made um, much more freely available uh, there could be uh, availability on a website. The problem is accessibility, and not everybody will want their, ta yeah. their tapes to be accessed. So, and the, I co think the copyright situation yeah. is very complicated. But we're moving towards making them freely available. And I think also, just in um, support of that, is it, it's also possibly a national body consideration um, because they are of sensitive material and um, the families need to be consulted first and foremost before we even start to um, think about things like that. But Yes, Professor, uh, you didn't mention New Caledonia within the... that uh, I'm I, I aware did. that there's... I did, I uh, mentioned the Loyalty Islands. Beg your pardon? I, I mentioned the Loyalty Islands, which are part of present-day New Caledonia. Uh, present-day New Caledonia? Yeah. I spoke to 
liberation fighters who were fighting against the French. And uh, I wanted to find out the word Kanaka. And I asked them if I could use the word in front of them. They were in the Trades Hall in Sydney. They had an office there. And uh, he explained the word Kanaka to me. It's a Polynesian word, meaning of humankind. Now, when the missionaries went to uh, Vanuatu and the Solomons and New Caledonia, uh, they used this because the word Melanesia reflects an old Greek word which means colour, which is uh, meaning black. So they didn't understand the words and the French missionaries started to have the backup of the French government in Tahiti and uh, shot down people in those islands to take possessions of them, especially New Caledonia and the loyalists. And uh, it's a very interesting part that a lot of because I remember growing up in North Queensland and uh, people were using the word Kanaka and I used to say South Sea Islanders and uh, people who were using that were mostly non-Aboriginal people. Mm. So it's, it's a meaning that, that has a meaning in Polynesia but not in... Uh, but they, they're making it a meaningful word in New Caledonia. So getting away and just concentrating on the... Vanuatu, Solomons and New Caledonia because there's South Sea Island people up here in Queensland and the northern part of New South Wales have French names. I, I don't know whether you're aware of that. Do you? Are you? Yes. What's the name? Hmm? What's the name? So, sorry, so, uh, the people out of the loyalty are for, out of uh, Marae or Lifu, for instance, would probably have... Well, they, they, if they haven't got French names... They would have uh, the, the Leafy Island names or Mari names. They're not necessarily French. There are other uh, there are other settlers in northern New South Wales that that were uh, coming out of a French colony in uh, that was set up in the 1870s in uh, New Ireland, and it, there may be a connection there as well. If we could, and they carry the name of Italian people who went there in the first place that went to northern hemisphere uh, went to northern New South Wales such as Dotai <coughs> which is a, an Italian name and Therese which is French mm. so there's a there could be a, dis, a, a division here between mm. people from different islands amongst South Sea Island people that that's, hasn't brought them together because I remember up in the gardens up there in Ingham Lucinda Pointway it was totally, I don't know what island they come up, but they were South Sea people. Keppel Sands were South Sea Island people outside of Rockhampton on the coast and uh, down in Bundaberg and down in the northern part, uh, in Fingal, Fingal Heads. Now, there's a lot of them up there who are members of local land councils mm. and under the legislation here it says only Aborigines should be, <laughs> should be members of local land councils. The New Hebrides of Vanuatu was half French and half British as a colony, and the the early British settlers in New Caledonia, and then uh, French settlers. So you are going to find some French. Look, there there are two words, Kanaka and blackbirding, and there's something I think that probably will be debated in the one talk conference in November because they're 
they're wonderfully descriptive words, that they're imprecise words in many ways, but they are the two words which really describe, which have been thrown up in Australia, that describe the Australian South Sea Island people. Kanak or Kanaka is the same word, one has just been turned French, uh, and it, it, it's, a, it's a basic Polynesian word for man. It's used in, uh, it, it can have a pejorative, you know, depreciating sense in the Pacific. It's used in... Uh, sorry, Pap Claude, we're going to have to cut it a bit it, short. It's used in Papua New Guinea. Thank you so much. I, I really do appreciate that. Yeah. Um, but if I may say, uh, Don, it would be a good uh, opportunity for you to actually attend one talk and you'll meet a lot of these communities that are coming together, finding family and heritage. So we welcome you on the 1st, 2nd and 3rd of November at State Library Queensland. Yeah? Um, Aunty Shireen Malamu, would you like to speak on recognition and what that means? Yeah, I'd just like to... Um, Clive will tell us later how much is in that fund, Pacific Island Fund, kept by the Australian uh, government um, or the Queensland Government, and being very quiet about it. Um, he will tell you that later. I will just say that the, the, as far as uh, slavery goes, slavery is always about people of colour. When, when um, President Lincoln finished the slave trade there, they, they, they came here. And here you see where these Traditional Aboriginal people worked in the sugarcane. There weren't enough. So they threw them a bit of um, cigarettes and some food. And this is how it started, because there wasn't enough people. So they thought that we must never forget slavery is about people of colour. And it, it doesn't matter how much um, you can dress it up. Um, no reference to you or uh, about um, academics or journalists, um, but it 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 didn't involve any in, anyone else. It, it it involved people of colour, and that's how they saw slavery. Um, um, I I just will say again, this might be a bit uh, controversial, but the Pacific Islands are used again with with the boat people. Um, and uh, I will say that it's ironic that it's used uh, the Labor Party at that time bought in the White Australia policy that sent them all home. And now the Labor Party again is using the Pacific to send all these, these, these poor people there. Um, I don't know how long that will last, probably after the election. Um, but another thing, um, you, can, you can listen to whoever, but it's always the cunning of reason to justify what's happened to a people and like sent people home like mongrel dogs. Um, I will say here that as far as the, um, um, the UN security vote, it's always the, the blackfellas have put Australia on the UN Security Council. They ought to think about it. Um, 
and we always should recognise it. it. It's all for profit. But there's people at the top, the unknowable people at the top, that, promise, pro that profit from this. And uh, we should never forget it. We don't know them, but they're there. But I might ask Clive now, um, how much is perceived to be in that Pacific Island Fund? Well, I'll have to be very quick, because I, I Melda will be after me. Yeah, please. Um, the, the, the answer is there's no money in the fund, uh, because it was taken by the Queensland Government and by the Commonwealth Government. If you look at the, the last amount of money that was in that fund, it was about £39,000 and about 1905 if you equate that through in terms of inflation and compound interest that the government would have had to use to borrow money, that comes to uh, close to $40 million today. It's missing. Thank you, Clive. Um, Professor Grayson Smallwood. I, I guess to, to follow on from that, I didn't expect any money in it, just like the stolen wages in, in terms of um, Queensland government using a lot of uh, uh, our black slavery. Uh, to build the infrastructure, but also all around Australia. But my greatest fear is that uh, because we're calling for recognition uh, for um, South Sea Islanders, like the land rights legislation and native title, we all know, and we've got the lady here, Arnie Netta, Mabo, the um, Mabo legislation in 92 clearly gave us sovereign rights, which we never relinquish. And, um, and then when the uh, multinationals um, spoke with the government, they got quite concerned because we knew that that was a landmark for us on sovereign rights and all other groups in this country would start to get recognition, not just Aboriginal uh, people but South Sea and Torres Strait Islanders. So the governments have had um, a long history of their cunning behaviour because they then uh, called in the federal parliament to do the 10 point plan, the watering down of the land rights legislation. It was, a, I called it the 10 point scam. And uh, it was a scam because what that scam did was divided and conquered a lot of our people. And um, you know, I've made it very clear to all groups that those old people would turn in their graves when you see this horrendous, racist piece of legislation called the Native Title Act versus land rights, which was our uncle Koiki Mabo's. And I just hope and I pray that um, this destruction of this Native Title Act doesn't fizzle over to the South Sea Island people because once we're all together united and white Australia will be united with us. So that's my dream and um, we just have to take notice that First Nations Australians have been divided and conquered through the watering down of the Land Rights Act which weakens our recognition, not just as a nation of black people, but also the socially conscious white people. We need them all to get out there to get more non-Indigenous peoples on our side. And that can only be done through the true history. And before we go off to summarise... <laughs> thank you for being so patient, Jeff. Um, there's a gentleman up the back that had a question. Uh, thank you. My name's Baby. Um, I'm with the... Pacifica Society here at the university. My question goes out to Professor Graceland and perhaps Jeff. I always wanted to ask, a, ask you a question. Um, how, does, uh, shining, how does shining the light on the slavery of South Sea Islanders contribute to current conversations 
within the social cultural context of Australia in regards to race relations, race discrimination and multiculturalism? Well, I think I'll pick up that brother there. Um, the transgenerational trauma has not been dealt with from genocide and slavery. But the hidden, you know, John Pilger did a brilliant documentary, The Secret Country. He wrote a book on it. So a lot of the issues that we've discussed tonight has been a secret country. Also, as I said, Christianity played a major role on suppressing, talking about human rights violations, talking about the rape and murders of our people, the Stolen Generation Report. So how does it shine a light? We've got to get to our young people. And the government's doing very well destroying our young people because we have massive amphetamine uh, increases since alcohol management plans and intervention. Mass um, home brews being made and it's just wiping a lot of our young people out, even though they're saying, is that evidence-based? When you live, eat and breathe in the grassroots, you know that's happening. Our future are our young people. I heard this young lady speak um, three months ago with her grandma and her story is not just isolated. It's the story of all of our young people which we need to be feeding to them on the future of this country and, and the, the pain and suffering amongst our young people. We have to continue speaking out. If we can change the attitude of one white Australian, we're winning this battle because we have to change it through government legislation because the unions are getting weaker Public servants are getting weaker. You can't burn the hand that feeds you. Back in the 60s, when black and white were together in one in unity, governments and capitalism and Christianity has really weakening people to speak out. I chose to give my thesis on my 60th birthday, but I wouldn't recommend it to a younger black Australian because you pay a deadly price. Years ago, we were just against white fellas. We've got some of our own people selling us out and speaking on behalf of us that have lost touch with poverty, genocide and the grassroots peoples. So in, when you speak out, you've got to make sure all of our children know this is what happened to your countrymen and we've got to stay strong. We've got to feed our young people this. This young lady's story just really touched me when I see so much suicide and so much pain and suffering of all of that transgenerational trauma that's happening in this country, but it's happened all around the world to mostly people of colour. Jeff, you grow up Australian. Did anyone have any other questions? Jeff, no. Good night. My name is Sumasi Singh and I'm the Papua New Guinea Consul General here in, in Sydney. I've just been here eight weeks. But having heard all the speakers, uh, let me thank you for highlighting something that's been there for a while. But just one question. Have we identified all the laws, regulations, policies that relate to this particular area so that in any state, legislation or even in territory, the Commonwealth can then give us one uh, specific direction to say this is the way we are going with all our indigenous people, if you like. So we need to do it collectively with all the different levels of uh, legislation so that nothing continues to exist 
we need to extinguish them in order to move forward in the new direction. Thank you. Thanks for the question. Um, this year we've got a conference uh, to establish a national representative body that will represent uh, the 80-odd affected islands in the Pacific uh, through Blackbird. In, and that body will look at, uh, will look at uh, presenting a model and then setting up uh, a board as such. But we do need to start from the grassroots, speak to government, all different levels of government, and working with uh, the broader community. We can't do this alone. So until we have that national body structure in place, um, it's still going to be a tug of war. And uh, until we uh, take responsibility yeah, for our uh, communities and leadership um, collectively in solidarity and put aside our differences, um, it's going to be really hard and will continue to just manifest as we have been over the past 20 years. That's from a South Sea Island perspective. But, um, yeah, so that's why we're here to encourage people to attend One Talk 2013 and it's open to the community. It's an Australian issue. Australia needs to take responsibility and we can't blame current communities for the past, but we can work together to make it better and have a clearer understanding of what this history is and bringing and collaborating with people such as this panel um, assists us with those strategies and developments of meaningful programs and services um, that will you know, empower our communities. Uh, I hope that answers your question as best I can. Jeff McMullen, thank you very much for your patience. Let me reflect on the importance of all of the voices that we've heard here tonight. Auntie Bonita Marbo's acknowledgement of country reminds us here on Gadigal Country that for thousands of years, for millennia, Aboriginal people, Torres Strait Islanders and South Sea Islanders have had that openness, the coming and going, the intermarrying, the trading, that happened long before blackbirding arrived on this continent. And in the openness, there was acceptance. This is the story of the world's longest, unbroken, multicultural success story. So recognising the human rights and the human story of South Sea Islanders is very important for us to know who we are, where we are now, how we got here, it acknowledges that we have a selective memory. Sometimes as a nation we have amnesia because there is a name for what happened to South Sea Islanders. It was exploitation. It was racist. It was aimed at people of colour. They were taken from their homes with no understanding of what this indentured labour contract involved. Those young men, most of them, did not see their families again. The 15,000 or so who died because they were given no warning about the disease they would encounter had no rights. And those who were put to work to build the sugar plantations were enslaved to an economic system 
We don't have to be nice about choosing the right words. We only have to face the truth because recognising the story of South Sea Islanders, there is in that truth a power and a beauty. It helps us work out what we are responsible for now. Why, of those few thousand that were not deported under the racism of the white Australia policy, we have the legacy in all of those tens of thousands of South Sea Islander families who have intermarried with a whole lot of other different people here, mainly Aboriginal people, but lots of others, the coming and the going, the marrying, the having of babies. But that shared history is what we have to come to grips with. Then we will see that our multiculturalism that goes way back through thousands of years is our strength. And there's a great beauty in that. But we must go onto the streets of Townsville and see that what we are recognising at the moment is we are celebrating the founder of Townsville, a blackbird. We are honouring what was beyond question that first shipload of people that were brought in to work as slaves in the plantation had no idea really how they were being enslaved to a system that was to exploit them until the day they died. The governments that took the money that was owed to them through the sale of the estates and never distributed that money to the families, that too is a consequence of this economic exploitation. So we have to recognise the truth of the past to understand the estimated 40,000 South Sea Islanders today, that heritage explains why still so many of them are disadvantaged. Unless we recognise the truth of our history, we won't know how to listen, we won't know how together to work on the healing, we will not even know who we are or how we got here. So South Sea Islander recognition in the government is one thing, but Hearing that we don't know as a nation of this story tells us it's time to end the denial. We have to get over the amnesia. We have to say that when you're brave enough to face the truth, the truth will be the thing that heals us, that gives us the mutual respect, and then we have a way to go forward. And then we can close that distance down that road to equality where all of the peoples that make up this great nation will have their place in it and we will respect one another. Thank you. I'd just like to thank everybody else um, that came and those that came later, acknowledging our South Sea Island elders over there. It's great to see you all here tonight and I really would like to encourage everyone to participate as a part of the One Talk 2013 at the State Library Queensland on the 1st, 2nd and 3rd of November because collectively we can come together as a strong national body and uh, work together and create some great programs and services for our communities and uh, different pers perspectives as well, you know. It's a new day, it's a new age and um, never forgetting the past of course but... Thank you very much. Thank you.